Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, hey, welcome to Page Break. I'm your host, Brian McClellan, coming to you between book edits in my office in Utah. Today's guest is epic fantasy author Peter V. Brett. Pete is the creator of the best-selling Demon Cycle, a five-book series he finished in 2017. The first book in a new series set in the same world is coming in August 2021, just two months from this recording. Pete and I talk about his love of comics, his background in pharmaceutical marketing, fan art, and writing at length in a single universe. Enjoy this conversation with Peter V. Brett. You got to decide on what you want to put your energy into. And, you know, sometimes it's whenever, whenever I have like downtime between books, that's when I start dreaming about side projects, you know? Yeah. And look, like just, just working on your books can feel monotonous and like there's when you're a creative person and you see all of these different kinds of media popping up like the creative part of you wants to go and play with it you know i totally like understand the desire to like i want to just do a youtube show where i review books or i want to you know do like do uh like an interview podcast or i want to do like like you know i want to start making funny tiktoks about my books or whatever like i have the urge to do all of those things but like just between like the kids and like writing my books, like I don't have a lot of time to invest in those other things. And I worry that if I put my creative energy there, uh, it will be drawn from something else. And like the books always have to be my primary focus creatively. Yeah. Yeah. See, I was going to ask you about that because you are, you're, you're one of those authors that so far in your career, you've pretty much worked on one IP. And I was going to ask how that feels. Is that, is that because it's kind of a, because you have financial incentive to do it or is it because it's comfortable or is it because, you know, something else hasn't popped into your head yet? It's because I don't think of it as an IP, you know, like I don't have that sort of like, I don't want this to sound bad, but I don't have that sort of like mercenary like approach to my own art, you know, like I created this world because I love it. And I, and I created like there's the part that I focused on, but it's also like a planet, you know, and there, and there's, there's other stuff to explore. And I, and I feel like I sort of set it at a time technologically where it's like really relatable, but it could go either way uh, very quickly. Um, And I populated it with like a wide variety of different kinds of people. And I feel like I can tell almost any kind of story that I would like to tell within the setting that I've already made. And so I don't, I frequently don't feel a lot of pressure to like jump to a completely different setting when like, I'm not done with this one. Like there's still plenty of stories to tell here. Um, But that said, (laughs) uh, 
there is also like a baggage to doing a long running thing. Um, so after five books and four novellas in Demon Cycle, uh, I felt like I was carrying a lot of weight. And what I mean by that is that like, that's like 1.5 million words worth of story. Yeah. And in that story, like every character has gone through like a whole host of experiences and, and changes and traumatic events. And, and now like it, like when you're writing the, the latter books in a series like that, every time you put two characters in the room together, you have to mentally go through their whole history and be like, did one of these guys like sleep with the other one's, you know, wife or kill their father or, or you know, like, like <laughs> there's so much like, like soap opera baggage that just sort of comes along with any interaction between two characters that it gets really mentally taxing to keep up with it all. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's why um, the books slow down for, for authors who write long running the- series where like, you know, you start to have a longer and longer period between books because the author, like it, like it's laborious and starting a new IP and a new like fresh story allows you to reset and like, okay, there's no rules this time. You know, I haven't made the rules up yet so I can do whatever the hell I want. And that is a very attractive thing creatively. And so there, like I do have a, another IP that I've been working on, like sort of in the background for two, two, three years now. Um, Just like, Whenever I have a cool idea, I jot it down and like, you know, I'm trying to make the magic system work. And like, there's a lot of like sort of tinkering you need to do to make a magic system work, as I'm sure you understand. Oh, yeah. Um, so like I've been doing that in the background and I've and I have a story like all mapped out. Um, and so like that is going to be my next project. And like that's I've got two books left on this current contract and then I'm open and I already know what my next project is and it's going to not be tied into this world. It's a, it's a good place to be though, to be able to have both the security of a couple more books under contract, but also knowing that you have the next idea lined up. It, it, I am feeling a lot more like at ease about my life and my career now that I know that I have that plan. Yeah. Um, when I didn't have the plan for what I was going to do next, that was when things were most stressful. Like, yeah. you know, uh, my career has gone very well and I've no, like, like, but I still like can't shake the sense that like it could all be taken away from me at any moment, you know, like, and I think a lot of authors have that, you know, like I get to do the thing I love, like that can't be right. <laughs> you know, like something has to like bring me back to reality. Yeah. Um, well, and it's funny. Cause I, I wonder, I wonder if, all authors have that niggling fear because you know, for me, it's that I don't have anything else. Like I never had a real career. I never had a job. And even if I did after eight years, I'd be well out of the kind of the field and not really be in a place to get back into it. And so, you know, there's that little fear in the back of my head of what if the next book bombs, you know, what if it just sells 5,000 copies and my publisher was expecting 100,000 copies. You know, what do I do at that point? And and I wonder if you, I wonder how big you have to get to not have that fear anymore. Well, I don't know. I'm certainly not that big because <laughs> I still have that fear. I still 100% <laughs> have that fear. <laughs> like, like uh, I don't think it ever goes away. And I think that that's good in some ways because it makes sure that you don't, slack off creatively like when you feel like okay like if i if i screw this up 
like it could all like all this could go away and I'm going to have to go back to like, you know, whatever my office skills were back in 2008 and hope (laughs) that I'm employable. Like, like it keeps you sharp in some ways and, and keeps you focused on like doing the best work that you can and not just phoning it in. Um, and so like, I, I tried to balance the two, this, the new series that I'm doing now, the nightfall saga, um, is in the same world as the Demon Cycle books, yeah. but it happens later. It happens 15 years later. It happens with a whole new cast. And uh, I wanted it to be somewhere where like somebody who's never read any of my books can pick up the first book in this series and just go and not need any of the baggage that I was carrying in the previous books. Uh, but if you're a fan of the previous books, like you'll still see characters, you know, and like, there'll still be in jokes that you'll get, you know? And so, uh, the hope was that I could balance the two and like keep it fresh for me creatively so that I could feel free to do whatever I want, but also like keep the magic that like people already liked. Mm -hmm. Um, well, and and that's, that's funny. You mentioned that because like your magic system, there is something about your magic system that is so incredibly grippable and uh and kind of approachable i i don't think i know of any other author and this includes like the big guys like you know brandon sanderson and rothfuss and george r R. martin and stuff well maybe not george r R. martin but i don't know of any of these other fantasy authors who get as much um fan art and people really engaging with kind of the visual aspect of your books and i i'm so impressed by that yeah it's i mean I think you gravitate to the things that you love uh, when you're a professional creative. And like, I used to want to be an artist. I, uh, in high school, you know, I was taking AP art and I was like really considering like a career in art, but I wasn't very good at it. And so <laughs> I like the reality of that set in and I like, uh, like I had also always been a writer and I was like, oh, you know, I'll put my energy into writing instead. Um, but I still love art. Um, and, uh, I have a degree in art history and, uh, I was working, um, professionally before getting into, uh, writing, I was doing, um, sort of like medical publishing, Yeah. but I was, uh, production, production, like I was, had a production and I was also acting like, uh, as an art director on a lot of projects and, um, building websites and making promotional items and stuff like that. And so some of those skills did transfer over and, one of them was sort of my love for like uh, uh, art and like, like visuals. And so I started doing giveaway contests for like advanced read copies of my books and I would make them fan art contests. And I uh, would continually change like whatever that like, like it'd be something that have like a really low bar for entry, you know, just like um, take a picture of yourself with one of my books, you know, was one of my first contests, but yeah, and like, uh, so I would do something that like anyone could do in five minutes, but some people would really go out of their way and be like, well, you know, I climbed the top of Mount Everest and like held up your book or whatever. And like, and so I would try and pick like some of the fun ones that people had just done quickly, but also like, right. uh, the ones where someone had obviously gone to great lengths, uh, so that everybody could feel included. And I think that that created a community of fans who sort of loved seeing each other's like they got to know each other through their entries in the fan art contests. Yeah. Because everybody would try their hand at whatever the, the challenge was. Um, and so it just, it, 
it created this little art community that like I loved and adored, you know, like, like so many people that like I, I became legit friends of mine through this little community of people just making fan art and like enjoying each other's creativity. Um, and so I think that that's part of it. But I also think that just the, the symbol magic in the books has a really sharp, creative look to it. And um, they're fun to draw. They look awesome. And so and like because it's uh, the symbols are used as tattoos in the books, I think a lot of people who are into tattoos have like gravitated to that. And like there are I've lost count of how many Demon Cycle tattoos I've seen. And they're all freaking fantastic. I think that's rad. That's so cool. I love seeing that kind of, I mean, not necessarily spontaneous, but I love seeing that kind of growth, you know, out of a fandom. It's fascinating to see how, what people kind of will catch on to and what will make them uh, want to kind of give back to a, uh, I, I mean, I, I mentioned IP before, but IP is slightly, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a cold. It's a mercenary sounding term. I'm not going to yeah. lie. Like, it when, is, authors say it, when authors call their own work their IP, like it makes me crazy because I feel like it's really <laughs> like, like, don't you care? Like, that's your family you're talking about. Yeah. I don't talk about my family as my IP. Like, like it's, it's personal, you know? You're not going to, you're not going to like the episode that I did with Wesley Chu then. <laughs> <laughs> Wesley does that shit all the time. No, I mean, look, Wesley is a very good friend of mine and he, uh, he talks about IPs, but he's like, he lives in LA, you know, that's how they talk. Right. <laughs> like it's, I, I think of that as a regional dialect that I encourage you to not pick up. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, now, so you, you mentioned you were working in kind of the, uh, w- w- was it marketing in pharmaceuticals then? I mean, like I, so I got out of college and, um, I discovered that my uh, degree in uh, 18th century literature qualified me for nothing. <laughs> um, and so like, you know, I did a stint for, for um, not quite a year as managing a comic book shop. Um, and then I got a job uh, editing phone books, like, like literally like business to business, like directories. Yeah. Um, which is a mind numbing job. Um, I can't even imagine. It was, it was like, like, just imagine editing a phone book. Like that's right. Uh, where you have to like verify like every number in it, you know, call them up and be like, Hey, is this still your number? Is this still your business? You know, like God. Um, so then like from there, I made the jump um, into medical journals where I like was an assistant editor doing like medical journals. Um, and then from there I went into like a, there are companies that are sort of like in between like the, the legit medical world and the advertising world that sort of like, uh, will like, you know, cover medical conferences and put out newsletters and, and, um, but a lot of it is sponsored by pharmaceutical companies who also throw in, you know, uh, stuff about their own drugs. Yeah. Um, and so like I was in that industry for 10 years. Um, and I sort of wore all the hats as I, um, like I came in as an editor, uh, and then I, uh, but the editor would like would basically be a project manager that would run everything through all of like, so I was proofreading and copy editing and, you know, commissioning writers and like, uh, giving them editorial feedback. And, you know, like, uh, I got to wear all the hats editorially, 
but then I moved into into print production in that company and uh, got to be like art director and you know was dealing with the printers and talking about like you know what laminate we should use and like what paper stock and you know like so I did that and then um, from there I went on and sort of branched out where like at that point in my career like the internet was booming and every company wanted a website and every you know like, like so uh, we would make like we'd be subcontracted to like make the website for Viagra or whatever. Right. And um, I didn't have a Viagra account, but like there were other like, you know, similar uh, like a drug, this drug needs its own website, like to where people can go and learn about yeah, it. Yeah. That, that sort of thing. Um, and so doing that, uh, I've rambled so much about my career. I forgot what the original question was. Um, no, no. So did you enjoy the work? No, no, <laughs> no. No, I mean, I learned a lot of very useful skills that I was applying to my own, to, to like my writing. Yeah. Um, writing was a hobby that I never really thought, like I, I dreamed that it would be a career one day, but I never realistically thought it would be. And so like I had a good steady career in medical publishing. Like I was making enough money to, to live comfortably in New York. And like I uh, was, I think, respected at work. And like I like... Uh, had real friendships that I had built there, you know, like, and I, like, I didn't hate it. Um, but it was a job, you know, like, it yeah. was, like I was there because they paid, me. you know, like it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't there. Cause I like, cause I, was, cause I loved it. Um, so when, uh, when one of my like submissions of my books that like, I never really expected anyone to buy, like went through, I kind of said to myself, look, you know, I can always get another job that I don't like. Yeah. So I'll just, uh, I'm making enough money. Like, uh, by the time I quit my job, I had sold the warded man in five or six countries and like, uh, wasn't you know, like wasn't guaranteed as much money as I was making at my current job, but I was guaranteed enough money to pay all my bills Yeah, for, you know, for the duration of the contract. So I said like, let's take two years and see where this writing thing goes. And if, and if it doesn't work out, I can always get another job. I don't like, you know? Right. Um, and that was, you know, that was 12 years ago. And like, I still like, I'm just like, all right, we're good for another two years. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but you know, that feeling that like, uh, it could all end never goes away. Right. But that is kind of the, that's the dream though, to, to take the plunge, to get that offer and be able to say, Hey, I have something here. I maybe I'll chase that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And like that, that's the thing. Like when you, when, when the offer comes, you need to be prepared to make that jump and not everyone, you know, like I'm not suggesting that anyone quit their job. Like that is a decision that you should make very soberly by looking at your numbers and not just do because you're taking a creative leap. Yeah. Um, but you have to be prepared to take the leap one way or the other, like whether you're giving up uh, sleep or you're giving up your job or whatever, like you, like that opportunity doesn't knock over and over again. Like, so you gotta be ready. Am, am I right in remembering that you wrote Warded Man on the subway? Yeah. I wrote like 60% of it on the subway, I would say. Um, yeah. I like the, the first draft I wrote at home. Um, and then I sent that to my agent um, and he like summarily rejected it because it was terrible. <laughs> um, and then, I, and then, but he asked me, he's like, look, there's enough good stuff in here 
that and like you sold it to me good you know when you talked to me about it at first uh like if you have anything else i'll take a look at it and so i sent him and like an even older and even worse book um which i still thought was pretty good uh-huh. um and he read that and he's like well i'm certainly not buying this thing <laughs> but <laughs> there's also a bunch of good stuff in here too and like if you could just like do a book that's all good stuff then like then that i'd, I'd buy and he uh gave me a book on writing called writing to sell by Scott Meredith, mm-hmm. um, which sort of like breaks down the formula for a bestseller. Um, I don't agree with everything in that book, but I do think that it like helped me look at it in a more structured way. Um, and so when I did that, I went back to that original manuscript of the worded man and realized that I went in without a plan. I ended up in a place I didn't want to end up. The ending was bad. And fixing that problem meant throwing away 60% of the book. Yeah. You know, and, and that sucked, but like that was what it was. Like I once I saw it, I couldn't unsee it. Like this book is bad and here's why. And I need to cut that part away and rebuild from there. And so like I cut out about 60% of the book. Um and I, uh, the book originally was only one POV, Arlen, and I made it into three POVs instead. And I like f- gave full stories to all three characters in a way that like came together and was satisfying. And, you know, like I completely redid that book. Um, and, uh, but at the time, like I, you know, I had a girlfriend and I had a life and I had a full-time job and I had to commute to that job every day. And like, there wasn't a lot of time for writing. And so I decided that my writing time meant giving up something. And so I started looking through my life and said, what do I need to give up in order to have two hours a day or whatever to focus on writing? And um, what I came across, like, like right at that time, there was a juxtaposition between that and the technology to write anywhere. So like I had got, gotten like an HP smartphone. This was like even before iPhone was was a thing. I had this HP smartphone um, with like a full keyboard like that you could like thumb type on and like real buttons where you could like press the button and there was like a satisfying like pop where you know you would press the button because we were all like technology shy then. Yeah. Um, and it opened up this like shitty version of Microsoft Word that like um, – you know, had no formatting or anything, but you could plug the phone into your computer at home and it would automatically sync to your lap, your desktop. And then you could open it up in real Microsoft word and fix everything. And the formatting that you made in real Microsoft word would stay in the, in the pared down. Um, so what I started doing was I got broke the book into chapters. I would make each chapter, a little tiny file that would fit on my phone. And I would, like get on the subway in the morning. Um, and instead of reading, which is what I used to do, I would, um, just put on my headphones and like shove some old, old lady out of the way so I could get a seat (laughs) and then just like head down and write. And I would, and so that was like 45 minutes in the morning and 45 minutes in the afternoon. And like, I found out that I could write about 300 words in 45 minutes on the subway. And so I consistently did that for a year. And, um, at night I would go home and sync it back to my computer and I would like fix all my thumb typos and, um, add another 400 words or so. And I was doing, so I was doing about a thousand words a day Yeah, and I did that for a year. And then that was the book that we ended up taking the market. Right. So a lot of it legitimately was written on my phone on the subway, which like, 
looking back, I don't know how the hell I did that, but <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't, that, that feels so, it, it feels almost primitive to me today, you know, because I, I couldn't even imagine, I mean, I have this honking mag gigantic phone and I can't imagine trying to write more than a text message on it. Yeah. I mean, I still write a lot on my portable devices. I mean, I do more of it on my iPad now. Yeah. Um, cause I can still take that pretty much anywhere. Um, but I've, I've, I've retained my, my thumb typing skills on the phone. And there are plenty of times when like, I'll be out and about and I'll have a cool idea and I'll go sit on a bench and like knock out 400 words, like, uh, and then go resume whatever it was I was doing. And I think that maybe that's a mental headspace more than a, than a practical one. I think anyone could do that, but like, yeah. I've trained myself to like be able to access like my creative side in little weird, uncomfortable bursts like that. Um, <laughs> now, did you, did you end up poaching any uh, major ideas from the older book that you showed your agent? Yes. Yes, I absolutely did. <laughs> um, is, is there anything that just comes to the top of your head or was it a little bit more fear, uh, uh, kind of like abstract than that? Uh, it was uh, like, there were a number of things there. Like there were a lot of names I stole. Yeah. Like I made up a cool character name and I like just imported it into the new books. Um, like Arlen Bales's horse, like it's called Twilight Dancer. And Twilight Dancer was like the horse of like my Uber Ranger dude, like from the previous series. <laughs> uh, the previous series was very like, it started out as like Forgotten Realms novels, you know, like, uh -huh. And then uh, I sort of made it into my own IP uh, and uh, <laughs> and changed the magic system around considerably to accommodate that. And one of the things that I had brought into that magic system was Electrum, which is a uh, naturally occurring alloy of silver and gold. And like I, and it's rare that it occurs in nature. Mm -hmm. um, and so I made that sort of like the best conductor of magic, you know? So like all metals can conduct magic, but like Electrum is the one that like, there's no signal loss. And so it's much more powerful and you can use it to make magic items or whatever. Um, and I imported that into Demon Cycle as like the best way to focus their magic. Yeah. Um, uh, because a lot of the magic in the Demon Cycle is uh, made from demon bones and demon bones like explode in sunlight uh, coding them with Electrum became sort of this like workaround to that. We're like, okay, now we have magic that like doesn't get destroyed in daytime. Yeah. Um, and so that was definitely stuff that I'd lived, you know, and there's a bunch of other little things. Like if I really thought about it, I'm sure I could think of more stuff. Yeah. No, that's very cool. Uh, now I know I, I did not, I did not know about you that you had worked for a comic shop for a year, but I do know that you're a major comic fan. This is true. Um, where where does that come from? Does that stem from working at the comic shop, or is that like a childhood thing? Oh, it's childhood. Um, I went into my brother's room when I wasn't supposed to one time, and he had like a copy of X Men, uh, X Men number one sixty two, like sh like like shoved in his bookshelf. Yeah. Um, turns out he had never actually even read it, but uh, I read it <laughs> and I fell in love with it. It was like the coolest thing I'd ever read in my entire life. And so um, I started actively seeking out comic books then. Um, and that was probably 
third grade um, and reading comics became like, that was all my reading, all the reading. I, I never read like a real book <laughs> until much later in life um, when my dad twisted my arm into reading a Terry Brooks novel because he was sick of me just reading comic books. But I like, I read comics yeah. for years and years and years. And so like at a time in my life when I had no real friends, like Spider-Man and the X-Men were my friends. Uh, <laughs> so I have like a, like a personal connection to that stuff, to, to, to those comics um, that totally colors my life today in like MCU land. Right. And you're, uh, are, are you a, uh, are you a born and bred New Yorker then? Yes. Yeah. I and, uh, was born in Westchester and then moved to New York city after college. And and do you think that, that, that kind of helped you really resonate? Cause a lot of those comics are very New York centric centric. Yeah. Um, the X-Men um, were based in Westchester and I lived in Westchester. Yeah. Yeah. So like uh, it definitely like felt special to me that like the X-Men are in Westchester and I'm in Westchester and they feel like outcasts and I feel like an outcast. And, you know, like they're like, there's a resonance there that, uh, you know, like I didn't fall in love with those comics for nothing. You know, there was a reason. And that was, that was it. Um, Do you collect? I did. I don't, I don't really anymore. Like I, I've reached a point uh, between professional commitments and kids. Like there's not a lot of just like sit and read time anymore. <laughs> and so uh, like, I haven't kept up with comics uh except for like a handful that, that I, that I kept reading uh, like particular things uh, I've dropped off for the most part, but I have like my lifetime collection, which I display quite prominently in my hallway because like it cheers me up to see it. Right. Well, it's an integral part of both your, just your life in general, but also your creative passions. Yeah. I mean, like, like there's so much inspiration in comics and like, I also just like, they're like, they're bright and they like light up the room. And, uh, I had like, like, I still have like a weird emotional connection, uh, to comic books that I don't think will ever go away. Um, yeah. So, and, and like a lot of story ideas, I'm sure are things that I, that were inspired by comics. Like even if, even subconsciously. Yeah. And you, uh, you did, you, you wrote one, right? You did a, a red Sonja. Yeah. It was kind of a lark. Um, I was uh, at Comic-Con with Brandon Sanderson Yeah, many years ago. Um, Brandon and I have the same agent. And so like, we just, you know, happened to be in the same place at the same time. Um, and he was talking to the head of Dynamite Comics. And I was talking to um, uh, one, of, one of the editors there. And I was saying like, oh, you know, I, I see that you guys had just um, gotten the rights to Red Sonja and relaunched it. And I really liked the, the, artist and the author that are doing it and they're doing a really good job. And like, I was saying that I used to read Red Sonja when I was a kid. Cause I read literally every Marvel comic. And so, uh, yeah. And like Red Sonja, um, there was a really good run of Red Sonja in the eighties, like, um, with, uh, Louise Simonson was writing it and Mary Wilshire was doing the art. And like, um, she wasn't in the chainmail bikini. She was in this other costume. Um, and so, uh, like, I really like that book. And so I was talking to the editor about how I was a longtime Red Sonja fan. He was like, look, we, we need to get you to write a Red Sonja book. You know too much about the character and you're a professional author. Like, why don't you just write us a book? Um, but like I had a, you know, I had my contracts for my novels and I didn't want to enter into a long term commitment doing it. Yeah. So like we made a deal to do like a like a sort of short run um, 
that's collected as the Red Sonja Unchained graphic novel. And like, it was a blast to do. Um, I really enjoyed doing it. Um, yeah. There was a big learning curve with it because I sort of strolled in like, oh, well, I'm a professional writer and I've read 10,000 comics. This will be easy. And I realized that like writing comics is a completely different skill set than writing novels. <laughs> and uh, for the first few issues, at least, it was, it was a lot harder than I expected it to be. Yeah. Once I got the hang of it, then it got considerably easier. But like it was a whole change of mindset to do that kind of writing. And um, it was a good learning experience and a good like humbling experience, like the kind of humbling experience that creatives need on a regular basis <laughs> to remind them that like they're not as smart as they think they are. Yeah. I I had a I had kind of a similar experience when I did the Powder Mage RPG that I just I kind of did the same thing where I strolled in thinking it's an RPG. It's just world content. <laughs> I know the world like the back of my hand. This will be easy. And then I realized that like a lot of a lot of epic fantasy writers, a lot of wannabe epic fantasy writers do it because they love creating tons and tons of world building. And I keep my world building fairly minimal. And so I, I started working on it and went, oh, man, this is such a different skill set than what I'm used to. Uh, you know, dialogue and fast moving scenes and things like that is so different than writing out big blocks of what the world is like. Yeah. I mean, like you don't need to, to like worry about like what the currency system is in this like distant city that you talk about sometimes. Yeah. Until you're, you know, you need player characters to be able to stroll in there and buy a, I don't know, healing potion or whatever. Um, and so there's a lot there's and there's a lot of math. There's a lot of math in putting together an RPG. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and the did, math needs did, to check out. <laughs> did Did you find yourself overwriting for the graphic novel at first? Oh, yes. Because you're coming from epic fantasy? I would write these like long like soliloquies for the characters. And then like the art would come back and there would be like this tiny little bubble. And, and, uh, you know, like so I'd written like, you know, 100 words. And then like the bubble can hold like 17. <laughs> <laughs> And so it's like, wow, how do I, how do I boil down this like long, complicated speech that lays out the, the, you know, emotional tension for this scene or whatever? Like, how do I do all that um, in 17 words instead of 100? Yeah. Um, actually, it was probably more like 12 words. Um, <laughs> and so it was a good learning curve to like teach me to be more precise in um, – what the characters say, but also uh, taught me to move a lot of that content over to the artist and be like, in this panel, the, the character needs to look like they're in this mood and they have to be looking at this person, you know, with, you know, and, and convey a lot of the, the stuff that I would have put in text in the art, which makes you a better writer, you know, like, cause then the artist doesn't have to do a lot of heavy lifting either. Yeah. Um, Although sometimes you'll be very, very specific about what you want and what comes back is nothing like what you asked for. And then you just have to find a way to roll with it. Right. Um, and so like, that's another part of like the learning curve is like when I'm writing a novel, I'm in charge of everything. When you're, when you're doing a comic book, like you're not in charge, you know, like you're, you're maybe one third in charge. Like, cause you don't <laughs> like, like I don't own red Sonia. I don't get, I couldn't kill her or, you know, like, or cut her hair short or like, you know, like there's a lot of things that had to be run by like the, the 
the IP holders. Right. Um, and then like, there's an artist who like sometimes does what I want and sometimes does his own thing. And sometimes he does his own thing and it's better than what I wanted. Yeah. And so like, but there's a whole like creative interplay that I never had to do as an author that you have to do when you're doing comics. Um, and so it was a really good experience, but I also like, I like the absolute power of novels. Yeah. 
in general, it was a sit down and enjoy it sort of show. And I liked that. I, you know, like, I think that WandaVision stretched the boundaries of what you could do within the MCU context. Yeah. More than any other thing had before, you know, like they put out like Thor Ragnarok and you're like, Oh, this is a comedy. I like, I wasn't expecting a buddy comedy, but all right. And it, and it worked, Yeah, you know, and, or like guardians of the galaxy where they're just like, we're going to do a space opera and like, and it worked. And so uh, I think WandaVision really was like, well, how far can we go with this? And like pretty far. That was you know, like, like that was a really entertaining show that was weird as shit. And like, and it was great. Yeah. But Falcon and the Winter Soldier is much more like what Peter Brett wants to watch. <laughs> you know, like I really like, I love the interplay between those two characters. I love the fact that they didn't shy away from like the racism conversation, the way that, you would expect a big property like Marvel to do. Like, I think they like, you know, obviously it was superhero down, but like, it still like yeah. really uh, touched it a lot with a lot more like uh, uh, respect than I expected. And it was, and, and like, so there was that. And like the, I really found myself identifying with uh, like uh, just the relationship between those two characters. Like I, it was, it was really good. I liked it. I liked it a lot. Um, I, yeah, I, I I particularly liked the the PTSD and trauma and the, and the way they approached that. Yeah, you know, I, I I kind of my wife and I are both kind of suckers for Bucky throughout the MCU, and and it, it was really fun to see him be in a longer form, you know, with the long show. Because a lot of us know people like that. A lot of us pe- people know people just like that. Yeah, who like you know uh, served, you know, and then like uh, came back like a little haunted or like struggling and uh, like we get it, you know, and, and part of you is like, look, you know, that could be any of us. Like if something horrible happens to you and you need to, to find a way past it like that, like, like that sort of thing is very relatable and very like sympathetic. And so uh, I, I totally get it. Like, I really like, like I felt like when he burst into tears, when they like broke the, the, the code. Yeah. Uh, like that, I, I, I teared up, <laughs> you know, like that effect affected, like I am a cynical author who does not frequently like display real emotion. And like that, right. that shit got me, you know, for, for me, we, we went back and while winter soldier or while the, the TV series was going, we went back and watched the movies uh, again. And, and for me, it's the scene in, uh in winter soldier when he kind of looks up at the bad guys and he goes, I knew his face Mm. and, and it kind of like, he looks like a little puppy dog and it's just, man, that, that like, that kills me each time. Yeah. I, I I did the same thing while I was watching Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Like, you know, like there's that like week between episodes and it's a long week. Yeah. (laughs) You know, Uh, you're used to getting it all in one shot. And so uh, having to wait week to week, uh, you need to fill that space. And so I went back and watched all the Captain America movies again. And like, they hold up better than you'd think. Like even the, the first one, like I didn't think it would hold up over time, but like, it's really true to like what Captain America was like during the actual war. You know, like, like if you look at like all the old Captain America, like comics and, and, and like tin toys and lunchboxes, whatever from like, way back when like he was selling war bonds you know and like punching hitler in the nose and and like 
So like the fact that they incorporated all of that, but modernized it and did it in a way that like was part of a cohesive story. Like, is like looking back, it's like a triumph. And like, you see the relationship between uh, Steve and, and uh, Bucky grow from the, like for years. And so like, you're very invested in both sides of that. And so like, uh, I don't know, like the, the, it, the show hit all the right notes. Yeah. I'm, I'm fascinated with what they're doing with the MCU, especially with the TV shows as kind of a support for the films uh, because it's, it's kind of cool to see a, a company allow, like you were saying with WandaVision to, uh, to experiment to kind of do things a little differently. Like as we're recording, we're what a week away from Loki. Yeah. The first episode mm-hmm. of Loki. And, and honestly of the three, that's the one I'm looking forward to the most. It looks, it looks weird as hell, but also awesome. Like we're like uh, my daughter and like, like Cassandra and I both watch all the Marvel movies yeah. and, and all the TV shows. And like, we're both like, like can't wait for it to start. Um, yeah. And she's going to go away to camp before it's done. Oh no. <laughs> I know. Oh, that's going to be rough. I just realized that talking to you right now. (laughs) Wow. You're going to have to break that news to her. Yeah, it's going to be rough. Uh, So uh, do you hear, like, and you're one of the few people I can ask this question to who really understand. Do you think that the MCU is thinking of the TV shows as novellas? Ooh, man, that's a really good question. Um, it's funny because it's like a chance to do a six episode deep dive into a particular character. And like, it doesn't look like any of these shows are going to get renewed for a second season. You know, they're just, they're just one offs. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I remember watching my, my biggest quibble with Falcon and Winter Soldier was that I wanted that plot in 10 episodes, um, rather than six. And I, I don't know, because, because in terms of length, the shows are, you know, a bit, they're longer than any of the films. Um, and that's kind of a, but yeah, they are, they are a bit like novellas. They're, they're, they're being treated as, as a sort of, um, I don't know, like, I don't know, uh, an ad- adhesive between the, the films. Yeah. They're, they're like, how do we advance the plot a little bit so we can step into the next film in the place where we want to be? Yeah. And so they're like the, this film left off here, we want this next film to start here. How do we fill the gap in between these? And so the shows are these little like novellas that like you could skip the shows if you want and just watch the movies and just sort of have to like pick up like, okay, some shit happened and now they're over here. Or you can deep dive into it and really like experience like the fullness of it. And like eventually it will spin out of control and get too big and I'll stop and I won't be able to do it anymore. But right now when so much of it is still tied to source material that I like grew up loving, like I read the vision in Scarlet Witch limited series in 1986 or whatever, you know, like, <laughs> uh, so like the, the stories still feel personal to me. Yeah. Like, um, do you, do you think that's the key to, to keeping success in, in any sort of, any sort of fantastical medium uh, is, is keeping them personal. It's not the only key to success. It is a key to success. Um, I think that right now, certainly Hollywood and I, and by Hollywood, I also include all of the streaming services like are mining our nostalgia, you know, for money (laughs) and like, uh, but there's a limit to, to, you know, sometimes the mind, sometimes the mind runs dry, Yeah, you know, like sometimes you're just like, you know what? Like I, Uh, Indiana Jones is done for me. 
Like I don't need more. Like I'm good. <laughs> like, 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 right. Um, and, uh, but other places they, they find like, Oh wow. There's, there's, there's a ton of like adult, like, you know, man childs who grew up reading comic books who like will pay good money to like, you know, see like the, that 1986 Captain America story, like now, uh, presented as Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Yeah. Because like, uh, John Walker as Captain America, the um, the conversion to U.S. agent, the Flag Smashers, all of that was in a comic that was in the Captain America comics. And I read all those comics 30 years ago, you know, so like there was another level to watching that show for me, which was just like, oh, they, you know, they made the Flash, Flag Smashers into like this weird sort of like, you know, terrorist cell instead of this the sort of like weird trippy thing that it was in the comics. Yeah, yeah. Um, and like John Walker, like, you know, like they, they reimagined it in some ways, but in other ways it felt very true to like what it was like, you know, like how I felt when John Walker took over as Captain America and like how I hated him at first, but then he seemed to be trying his best. And then I started to feel like not bad for him, but then he went back to like, you know, like, <laughs> like all of that happened. Like I went through all of that emotionally, like years and years ago. Yeah. Um, and so seeing it all come to life in a way that was modern and still felt relevant was was super cool. That's awesome. Um, I, I've got one one last question for you. What is the last meal that you had that blew your mind? I um, I had a restaurant steak like last week, and it was yeah. freaking amazing. Like we've been making steaks at home like over the course of the pandemic, like you know once in a while. And like it, it did always feel like a special thing. Like, oh, we're having steak tonight. Like it's a special night, right? Um, but the steaks we make at home are not, like, like I live in an apartment. I don't have a grill. Yeah, you know, I like I'm making them in a frying pan in the kitchen. You know, like, uh, and I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> like, so like uh, we went to I went to like a like a proper New York steakhouse. Yeah, uh, and like had a like a, like I'm just like hell with it. I'm getting like the bone in ribeye do it <laughs> and it was amazing <laughs> that's fantastic well hey man thanks so much for taking your evening and chatting with me it's been a huge amount of fun to catch up with you yeah i really enjoyed this this was genuinely a good time thanks for inviting me to to be part of your ground floor podcast of course my pleasure what are you calling the podcast do you have a name it's gonna be page break with brian mcclellan That was author Peter V. Brett. Thanks again to Pete for joining me. You can find links to Pete's social media and some of his books down in the show notes. You can find me, as always, at brianmcclellan.com. Special thanks to James Sutter for music and Tom Bishop for production. If you'd like to support the podcast, head on over to patreon.com pagebreak or buy my books in ebook, paperback, or audio. Don't forget to like and subscribe. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. 
Let's get this dinner party started.